Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to sing songs like that, just to be reminded about what we are hopeful for. It's hard not to be discouraged in our world today, right? I mean, every time you look at the news, there's another gut-wrenching story of a fallen world. It's just there to remind us every time we look at it. It's just uh, discouraging to me to see just the prideful sin and arrogance of people who willingly choose to live life apart from God. And as a result, what do we see? We see broken families, we see divorce, we see infidelity. In fact, marriage is really no longer sacred. And sexual immorality becomes increasingly acceptable. I can even remember when I was a teenager, which was a number of years ago. But even then, I remember uh, being in high school. And my parents built onto our house. And so I lived, my room is up on a second story. It was really the only two-story in the neighborhood. So it was like a perch. I could see forever, right? Including uh, my neighbor's backyard (laughs) and their pool. Uh, in my neighbor's backyard. I remember one time seeing families from our neighborhood having a get-together, but later that evening, I saw the father of one family being very affectionate with the mom of another family. What I was seeing was an affair take place right before my eyes. That's the world we live in. Marriage is no longer sacred and Neither is life. I mean, how else can you describe or defend or explain somebody driving a vehicle into a crowd of innocent people? Life is no longer sacred. Killing the innocent is an all-time low of depravity. Dysfunctional families, sexual infidelity, killing of the innocent. Not only do those describe our modern-day world, they are also a fitting introduction for our next series. Those are really the highlights of the life of David, the headlines of his story. A man after God's own heart. Dysfunctional family, sexual infidelity, killing of an innocent man. How in the world do we see redemption in a story like that how can God use a man so flawed in such significant ways well maybe just maybe if there's hope for someone like David there's hope for this world maybe just maybe if God can do a work of redemption in his broken life he could do the same for you and I What is true of David is also true of us. And we need to understand, what is it that makes David a man after God's own heart? Because clearly it's not because David lived a perfect life. (laughs) Which I don't know about you, but I hear that and it's somewhat of a relief, right? There's some, some appreciation for the fact that he was flawed and so am I. So if God can do redemptive work in his life, Maybe he can do the same in my life and yours as well. There's something about David's heart that God wants us to see. There's something about David's heart that is intended to give us hope. That's why it's here. And that's why it's told with such honesty, 
so I'd like for us to pray together that as we begin this series looking at the life of David, that God might show us what it is that he saw in the heart of David and that he would help us grow and learn to become that kind of man or that kind of woman, someone who has a heart for God. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to you this morning, we recognize that we live in a fallen world. But that's been the case since the garden. And over time, we see all different forms of depravity, but really, there's the same curse of sin that underlies it all. And there's only one answer to it, it's redemption. And so, Father, as you uh, tell us the story, as you reveal your word about who David was and what you saw in him, would you enlighten our hearts to see the same? And may our hearts be stirred to grow, to desire to become that kind of a man, that kind of a woman. What was it that was important about David that we need to see for ourselves? Would you make that clear and help us as we walk through your word together? We pray this in your name. Amen. If you want to, you can go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. And as you're doing that, I feel like it's important any time we begin a new series like this to, to put it into context. In other words, how does the life of David fit into the biblical narrative as a whole? Well, to answer that question, I want to look at it first from a historical perspective. So David was the second of three major kings in Israel's history. And those kings followed the time of the judges. Now, you remember, that time of the judges was uh, depicted in Scripture as the time in which every man did what was right in his own eyes. You recall Moses delivered the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. Joshua led them into the promised land, and now they're home. They're in the place that God has promised, and they're growing comfortable. But they're surrounded by the influence of of pagan nations. And I think a lot like us, Israel was easily influenced by the sinful practices of this pagan world. The fact is, it's exhausting to try and stand strong in a world that was filled with compromise. What was true for them is true for you and I as well. Over time, Israel would find themselves falling into patterns of sin. They would adopt these lifestyles of the world around them. And as a result, they would bear the consequence of those sinful decisions. As time would get on, go on, the, the pain would become unbearable to the point that they would cry out to God for deliverance. And God, because He's gracious, and His mercies are new every morning, He would hear their cry. And he would raise up a judge. A judge was basically a, a, a deliverer who was given special abilities by God to help lead the people of God into a place of restoration. A judge, a deliverer. The judge would remind the people of Israel of who God called them to be. A distinct people. A people set apart from the world around them. Their faith would be restored. They would walk with God only to find themselves falling right back in those same old patterns of sin. And the cycle would repeat itself over and over again. It's an oversimplification of that history, but it 
gives you an idea of what was taking place. It also helps us understand the, the spiritual context in which the life of David is depicted. That spiritual context can be described as a, a long drift away from faithfulness to God. You see, they were not so convinced that God had their best in mind. After all, they could look at the worlds around the, the nations that were surrounding them, and they seemed to be doing pretty good without him. And many times they would look at those other cultures, those other nations, and say, you know, we kind of like to be like them. We want to be liberated from the, the spiritual requirements, the covenant commitments that we've been called to keep. We want that freedom like other nations. In fact, we want a king. If we had a strong ruler, we could be a strong nation like everybody else. But I want you to listen to what they're saying when they make that statement. They are choosing to walk away from the rule of God. They have a king. His name is God. But they believe that they can do better. In fact, they didn't even ask his opinion when it came to choosing a king. The choice seemed obvious to them. There was a man who stood literally head and shoulders above them all. A man by the name of Saul. When I think about Saul in my little simplistic mind, I think Gaston from Beauty and the Beast. That's just the image that comes to my mind, okay? That's what I think about when I think about Saul. I mean, he was the undeniable choice of the people. The Bible says that there was not a more handsome man in all the sons of Israel. He was a mighty man of valor. He literally stood head and shoulders above the rest. The undisputed choice of the people, and it was a disaster. Because the fact that he was selected by the people, that, he was, that that selection was based on his image, guess what? He now ruled to protect that image, along with the desire to please the people. They got exactly what they asked for. He ruled to protect his image. He ruled with an unending desire to please people. Saul was a gifted man. The problem is he relied on those gifts apart from God, and eventually they ran out, and he had nothing left. You see, just like we would, Saul broke under the pressure of trying to make everyone happy. He, he broke under the pressure of trying to, to please people instead of living in a way that would honor God. You see, he rejected the Lord's guidance, and the Lord rejected his leadership. We know that if you want to, you can look at it in verse 26 of chapter 15. Chapter 15, verse 26 says, But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. It's important to understand that Saul had every chance to succeed. God gave him the privilege to be in rule over his people. God empowered Paul or Saul with the Spirit of the Lord. God guided him by his word. Saul had everything he needed to be successful in that role 
as king. But Saul was prideful. He was impatient. And he chose to go his own way. He rejected the Lord's guidance. And so God rejected his rule as king. Now what's interesting is he'll continue to rule even beyond this point for another 15 years. But in the meantime, God is going to select a king for himself. A king that he'll choose this time. A man after his own heart. Let's see how that begins to unfold in chapter 16, verse 1. Chapter 16, verse 1 says, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? For your horn, Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. For I have selected a king for myself among his sons. You may remember Samuel was a prophet who anointed Saul as king just as God had instructed him to. Uh, Samuel was the son of Hannah. Hannah prayed for a, a child, a son, and she promised when that child was born that she would dedicate him to the Lord, and she did that. He was mentored by a priest named Eli, and, and Samuel was really one of the only bright spots in a very dark part of Israel's history. He was faithful to the Lord's command, and he was grieved over the sinful, selfish rule of Saul. God sent him to Bethlehem, really a, a no-name city in the middle of nowhere, a farming community more or less. In Bethlehem, there lived a man named Jesse. God tells Samuel when he sends him to Bethlehem that I will choose a king out of the sons of Jesse. See, the people made their choice, and it was a disaster. Now God is going to make his choice, and he's going to choose a man after his own heart. Look at verse 2. But Samuel said, how can I go? When Saul hears of it, he'll kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. This verse actually tells you a little bit about Saul's emotional state. The fact is, he's having an emotional breakdown. He's become paranoid by always trying to please people to the point that he is now using his power to destroy anyone who might oppose him. So it's important to understand that when Samuel was afraid that Saul might kill him, it was a justified fear, okay? It was a justified fear because that's what Saul was doing to protect his image and his power among the people. But God says to Samuel, go in my name. Take a heifer. Tell them you're there to make a sacrifice. And unlike Saul, Samuel was willing to obey the Lord even at the risk of his life. Look at what it says in verse 3. And you shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one who I designate to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said. And he came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came trembling to meet him. And they said, do you come in peace? Now there's some humor in this verse that we need to make sure we see. This is kind of like... When the principal walks into the classroom at school, right? 
or for a little more personal effect with me, this is what it's like when I, as pastor, walk into an ABF on Sunday morning unannounced. Okay, everybody's like, why is he here? Are we in trouble? Okay, same thing is going on here. When, when Samuel walks into this city, the elders gather together and say, why is he here? Are we in trouble? Does he come in peace? That's what they're asking. Look at verse 5. And he said, in peace I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. So consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. He also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Now, what's important to note here is that Jesse is the grandson of Ruth and Boaz. Remember Ruth and Boaz? Remember from that story that Boaz was a wealthy landowner. Very likely, Jesse has inherited some of that wealth because he's notable in this community. Even though it's a small town, it's very likely that Jesse was a well-known man and had a family to speak of. So he comes to this meeting just as Samuel had requested with all of his sons. Look at what happens in verse 6. And then it came about when they entered that he looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his outward appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So picture the scene here. Samuel brings out his son. He lines them up, I expect, from oldest to youngest. It would have been what he would have done in that culture. It seems as Samuel looks at the long list of the sons there, seven of them in total, that the oldest would be the most likely choice. He's the firstborn. He's tall. He's experienced. Like many firstborn sons, he's a proven leader. Surely Eliab's the right choice. So much so that Samuel actually goes to unscrew the cork off of the horn of oil, getting ready to anoint Eliab as the next king. It seems clear until God says, wait, 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 wait. Stop the ceremony. That is not the one that I have chosen. He goes on to explain, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart inside of the man. Eliab looked the part, but from God's perspective, he does not have the right heart. Now, here's what's interesting to me as I think about this scene. Samuel's a prophet of God, a spiritual man, and yet he didn't discern that that was the case. And what that tells me is that there is only one who reserves the right to know the heart of man, and that is God. And no matter how spiritual we may be, we cannot judge the thoughts and intentions of another person because that right is reserved for God alone. We look at the outward appearance and we make all kinds of judgments and assessments about people, but God alone sees what's inside of their heart. Look at how the story continues in verse 8. Then Jesse called um, Abinadab. And made him pass before Samuel. That was son number two. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Next, Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, 
Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Okay, this gets kind of, they're guessing at this point, right? Some num- son number one wasn't the right choice, so obviously it must be son number two. No, it's not son number two. Okay, number three. No, not son number three. Four, five, six, seven. Now it's awkward. Right? Because there's no more left. That's all of them. They're there, right there. So Samuel looks at Jesse. Jesse shrugs his shoulders. Samuel's confused. Now what do we do? Look at verse 11. And Samuel said to Jesse, are these all the children? <laughs> and he said, well, there remains yet the youngest. Behold, he's tending the sheep. Then Samuel said to Jesse, <laughs> send and bring him. But we will not sit down until he comes here. I want us to keep in mind something here. In Jesse's defense, David is the youngest. He's still a teenager at this point, right? It may surprise you to know that David was actually born 10 years after Saul became king. He's still a boy at this point, hardly a man. So if Samuel's here to anoint the next king, it would have been really easy to overlook David. He doesn't have near the life experience as his older brothers do. But here's what intrigues me about this fact. David is just a boy. And if that's the case, God is choosing David not for who he is, but the man he will become. God sees it all, right? He sees everything. He even sees past all the flaws and mistakes that are yet to come. And through all that, he sees a man that David will become. David was not chosen because of his impeccable character. David was not chosen because of his unique set of gifts and abilities that somehow separated him from anyone else. It could be argued that it was any one of his brothers who employed those same gifts and abilities. More so at that time, he was just a boy. Some could even argue that Saul was just as gifted, if not more so. And yet, there was something that God saw in David's heart. Even as a boy, he knew the man he would become. Look at verse 12. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with beautiful eyes, handsome appearance. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. David's not all that shabby. He's ruddy, he's handsome like his brothers are. He's, he's strong. The problem is, he's still a boy. And yet God said, this is the one that I have chosen. Arise and anoint him as king. Look at verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. God has made his choice, and he has equipped David 
for the task. It says, the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him from that day forward. In that moment, David had everything he needed to rule as king. He may be a boy, but he was divinely appointed, divinely equipped with everything he needed to rule as king. Now, I want to pause here. Because if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you need to understand that the very same thing is true for you. In the moment that you believed, you were anointed with the Spirit of the Lord. And in that moment, you had everything you needed to fulfill all that God has called you to do. His presence has come upon your life. He has equipped you for what He has called you to do. Whether you're a young boy or a young girl, whether it's early in life or late in life, whether a parent or a pastor, a CEO or a teacher, in that moment you believed, you had everything you need. I want to give you a passage of Scripture. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. Probably my favorite chapter in all of Scripture. But I want you to listen to what is communicated about us as those who have trusted Christ in verse 13. It says that in Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of your inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. If you were to read all of chapter 1 of Ephesians, what you would learn is that you have been chosen by the Father. You have been saved by the Son. And here we see you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Which means that your salvation is a miraculous work of God. And it was sealed your inheritance, that promise of your future. Everything that we sang about this morning is sealed based on the promise given to us by the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. Which means that the security of your salvation is not based on your performance. It's based on the promise of God. You have been divinely equipped to carry out what God has called you to do. You were not chosen because of what you did for God. You were chosen because of what God has done for you through the person and work of Jesus Christ. You have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace which He has lavished upon you. For by grace you have been saved, through faith. And that not of yourselves is a gift from God. Not as a result of works. Not as a result of gifts and abilities. Not as a result of anything that you've done to prove your worth and value in His eyes. Because He sees you not as you are, but who He created you to be. God sees you not as you are but who He created you to be, and you were created to be a child of the King. That's who you are in His eyes. 
from God's perspective, the most important thing about you is what he sees in your heart. Are you teachable? Or are you ruled by pride? You see, that's the difference between the life of Saul and the life of David. God opposes the proud. He rejected Saul because of his pride, his unwillingness to follow the word of the Lord. He was gracious to David because he was humble and his heart was teachable. So as we finish up, I want to point out three things that I think are really significant when you start to look at the life of Saul compared to the life of David. A man whom God rejected and a man whom God chose. A man whose heart was cold and indifferent and a man whose heart was a heart for God. And so let's just, and what I hope is, is as we go through this series together, you're going to see details of these realities unfold over and over again. So let's begin that process this morning. Number one, I'd encourage you to write these down, okay? Number one, Saul ruled in his strengths and abilities. David learned to put his trust in the Lord. Saul ruled by his strengths and his abilities. David learned to put his trust in the Lord. And I want you to know I've chosen my words very carefully. I said David learned. David was not a perfect man. But David had a teachable heart. And over time, he learned what it meant to put his trust in the Lord when he tried to do things on his own. We know that's true because we have the Psalms. You know what the Psalms are? They're David's spiritual journal. They're the insight into what's going on in his heart. And we get the privilege of reading it. Can you imagine somebody reading your journal? <laughs> well, this is what we have in the book of Psalms, is David's journal. If you want to, turn to Psalm chapter 13. Let's look at David's journal entry in Psalm chapter 13. Read with me in verse 1. Listen to the honesty with which David writes about what is going on in his heart. And you ask yourself if you've ever felt the same way. How long, O oh Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long? How long are you going to hide your face from me? How long? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day long? How long do I follow you while my enemies seem to triumph? How long? See, David and Saul were afforded the very same opportunity given the same privilege as king, really the same anointing by the Spirit of the Lord. Think about that. The Spirit of God was on both of these men. The difference was times of difficulty. That's what separated these men, is how do they respond when they got to the end of themselves and they didn't have anywhere else to go? See, Saul was known by just taking, pulling himself up by the bootstraps and just pressing on using whatever strengths and abilities he had in every whatever way he could think of. But David was honest in his difficulty, but it didn't end there. He cried out to the Lord. He opened his heart to God. Saul was prideful and impatient. 
when matters got tough, he just took matters into his own hands. David learned to trust in God more than he trusted himself. See, that's key. Saul trusted himself way too much. David learned that his self is not worth trusting when he can put his trust in God. Look at how he continues in that psalm. Listen to the journal entry as he continues. Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. See, David recognizes that if he's going to find an answer, it's going to become, it's going to have to come from the sovereign God. It's not in himself. So God, I'm calling out to you. Lest my enemies say, I have overcome him. Lest my adversaries rejoice when I am shaken. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart will rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dwelt bountifully with me. See, when times were tough, David learned to trust in the Lord. He learned over time that God is faithful, that he is faithful in his steadfast love. See, Saul relied on his own strengths and abilities. David learned to put his trust in the Lord. Number two, Saul was driven by the desire to please people. David learned to honor the Lord. Saul was driven by the desire to please people. David learned to put to honor the Lord. See, Saul literally had an emotional breakdown from trying to live up to everyone else's expectations. David, over time, learned that God's opinion is the only opinion that counts. If your desire is to make everyone happy, then like Saul, you will become chronically depressed. It's inevitable. Because no matter how many compliments, encouragements you might receive, all you will be able to think about, all you will be tormented by is the one dissenting voice. The one who doesn't necessarily agree that you're all that and a bag of chips. David was far from perfect. But because his heart was teachable, he learned to be satisfied with being faithful. He was not ruled by desire to please people. David learned to be content in honoring God. He learned that in the end, our heart is more satisfied in honoring God than it is from any worldly praise we might ever receive. And and it's the simple faithfulness of daily obedience. Not the the changing the world, the, the writing books, the being that that everybody thinks you should be, it's faithful. What has God called you to do and are you faithful each day? That's what honors God. And that's what David learned. Number three. Saul rationalized his sinful choices. David learned to repent. Saul rationalized his sinful choices and David learned to repent. You see, Saul was quick to blame others for his mistakes. It was always someone else's fault. He rationalized his sin. Why? Because he had an image to protect. He had to blame it on someone else because if he took the guilt of it, then he wouldn't the perfect man that he's presenting himself to be because he got to please everyone. David, on the other hand, 
understood the gut-wrenching reality of hiding your sin. Let me give you an example. Turn to his journal, chapter 32. Psalm chapter 32. And I want you to look at verse 3 with me. Psalm 32, verse 3. David says, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night, God's hand was heavy upon me. And my strength was drained away as with a fever in the heat of summer. That's a miserable place to be, a fever in the heat of summer, right? And David's saying, that's what it felt like when I knew in my heart that I had sinned against God. But I tried to hide it from him, knowing that he sees everything in my heart. See, because of Saul's pride, his heart grew hard. And over time, as he continued to rationalize his sin, he lost sensitivity to his own sin. To the point that he forfeited, by his own choice, forfeited God's forgiveness. He rejected God's word. He walked away from what had been offered to him by deciding to do it on his own. It was his choice. David found hope through confession. Look at how that journal entry continues in verse 5. Even though he understood the pain of his sin, he said, I acknowledged my sin, and I acknowledged it to you, God. In my iniquity, I did not hide. I said, I will confess my sins to the Lord. And look at what he found. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. John explains it this way in the New Testament. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. David is speaking in the Old Testament about that New Testament truth that you and I should know. Because see, like David, Christians are people of confession. Not people who live perfect lives. But they are people who are being perfected by a perfect God as they are humble before Him. As they have a teachable heart as they recognize their sin and they refuse to hide it. And they go to the one place where they know that they can find forgiveness. Where they're covered from guilt and shame. But only if we have a teachable heart. So let's think through these three things as we continue through this series. Learning to trust God and not our own strengths and abilities. Learning to honor the Lord and not the opinions of other people. Learning to repent of our sin instead of rationalizing our mistakes. Those are just three of the attributes of what it means to have a heart after God's own heart. Whether you're a man or a woman, that's who we desire to be. Let's pray together. Father, I just want to express gratefulness for the honesty of your word. That when we read the Bible, we see the honest truth about people's lives. And they are not hidden or made out to be some fairy tale. Where everything's perfect and worked out great and they never struggle and life's never hard. That's not what we read in the life of David. We see it all. We see a man who is far from perfect. Who has his own set of flaws and imperfections. Yet within that you see his heart. And you see a man who has a teachable heart. 
and who is humble before you and refuses to carry out sin in pride and selfishness without repenting before a holy God. And so, Father, I pray that as we look at his life and we understand his heart, that we would desire to have that same heart. Not perfect lives. That we'd be people of confession. People who are honest and humble. Who don't seek to look good in the eyes of men, but instead seek to honor God, to honor you. And that we find in you what our heart longs for most. That in the moment that we put our faith in you, we were anointed by the presence of your spirit. And in that moment, we had everything we needed to fulfill all that you've called us to do. As a parent, as a pastor, as a teacher, whatever it is. And all that you ask of us is that we have a humble heart and seek to live faithfully in obedience to you. May that describe who we are. We pray this in your name. Amen.